are you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You know, you know that thing where um, it's two white guys talking on a podcast. <sighs> Skype doesn't work. Yeah, it's, that's today. Holy, I I don't even know. I don't know what happened. I went to my Skype and then it told me that I was someone else and that I didn't have an account. Then I had to put my birthday in. And then, whoa, I think you, you've been hacked. I've been hacked. Uh, and then and then I thought it was because I was on a VPN first. Because I've been um, I've been using a like a VPN when I'm on public Wi-Fi, and and that was on, but I'm not on public Wi-Fi. So then I turned it off. So I thought it might be that, but then you were having the same problems, and that, then the Skype had no sound. Uh, it was it, now here we are. We made it. We made it, but but it's it's so weird because I have a Skype username and I have an email address associated with that username, and it's like somehow those two accounts got disconnected, and 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 I and and so I wanted to log on to the one that has my email address associated with it, and I'm like I forgot my password. I mean I said I told Skype I forgot my password, even though the password that I was using, which is associated with my username, was letting me log on to that one fine, and then. Um, uh, and, and and so and then it's like okay well tell us you know here's your email address with part of it like you know start out um, fill it in and we'll send you a code and I did that and I'm still waiting for that email to come um, so I don't I'm 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 just assuming that they made some big change obviously and it's messed things up um, for for more than just us and that may be why the whole system is is kind of crashing under be. the under the burden of, uh, of of all this 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 change that they've made, so maybe they're, anyway, maybe they've updated their privacy settings. Yeah, yeah, I bet that's what it is. I bet that's what it is. They have somehow updated their privacy settings, and oh, and then I have I have like uh, uh, credit under that old account. Oh yeah, this, cur- this this current account no credit. So, wow. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but it's a pain. It was a pain in my ass. Yes, was, and. Uh, it was I, I was a couple minutes late, but then I got later and later and later, and then I had to restart my computer. And then you're like, "Ah, oh, it's it's me too," so it made me feel a little bit better that it wasn't just you waiting on me. And and now we've made all the listeners wait while we talked oh. about how how terrible Skype is. So well, sorry about the, sorry, listeners. All their favorite podcasters will be talking about how terrible Skype is this week. I'm sure. <laughs> oh my god! And all the people trying to do to a, do a well. I guess if you're doing a live podcast from WWDC, you're probably okay. But um, that's not us. <laughs> no, no, we're not. Uh, what would what would uh, Steve Jobs do? I think that's what WWDC stands for, right? Um, <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. That's oh, mostly correct. Mostly correct, mostly correct. Um, yeah, well, I'm glad we're not doing that. I'm trying to adjust my microphone placement and get my, my stuff there. Oh, there we go. I'm, I'm now in a spot where I'm happy. Um, so you you are at uh, a little OPSEC, but you're at home. Um, I am. And uh, you've got some uh, some yard yard maintenance uh, potentially happening. I, well, I think those guys have gone, um, so I think we're good there. Um, but then the other the other wrinkle is that there may be at some point a guy showing up um, to fix the windshield on the car that my wife drives. Ooh. So, um, <laughs> is that a is that an exciting story? 
It's no, it's a boring. It's a boring story. Uh, one day her windshield started cracking, um, and it was cracked a little bit, and then uh, a little time went by, and then it got cracked more, um, and then a little time went by, and it got m- cracked more. Um, and so I. And this is he's not a sponsor, um, but I called uh, Diamond Dave, um, uh, and and Diamond Dave um, is a interesting guy um, to say the least, um, and he may come today. <laughs> Yeah. To fix my windshield. Well, that's exciting. Diamond Dave. Or, he, or, or, or he might not. Um, and I might get a phone call or a text at some point, or I might have to text my wife to run outside to talk to Diamond Dave. Um, but, but I don't know. Dave, uh, Diamond Dave, uh, he's got a lot of good, he's got a lot of good reviews on Yelp and, and, and stuff, but he seems to, uh, he's kind of, he's kind of shooting from the hip a lot, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you've got a name like Diamond Dave, um, do, do you think that Diamond Dave knows uh, Brett Michaels? Because... <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference. That is. That is. Oh, uh, D- Diamond Dave. Uh, David Lee Roth, also known as Diamond Dave. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm not. A, I will be. Let me tell you this. I will be very surprised if David Lee Roth shows up to fix my, my windshield. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, but that would totally make my day. Well, um, we'd stop the podcast for today. Yeah, we would. We'd Hell, we, we, oh, we wouldn't stop the podcast. We'd have him on. Diamond Dave, tell us about your food safety habits. Uh, oh, uh, he's uh, according to Wikipedia, he began in 2012 uh, broadcasting a video webcast on his YouTube channel. Uh, oh, I don't think. I'll... Yeah, uh, he's a resident of Tokyo since May 2012. Oh, how about that? Yeah, so he's un- unlike pretty big in Japan. I hear big in Japan. Um, Diamond Dave, Diamond Dave's coming by. Um, so, uh, that, the way that you told the story about, uh, the windshield also sounded (laughs) like, um, like a children's story. Like one day this happened and one, and then the next page and it grew and it grew and it grew. I think it's a, I think you're, you just recited the giving tree. I I don't know if that's even a real, I think that's a a name of a, a book. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's nothing being given. I'm paying for the windshield. Ah, it's a. Uh, there you go. A giving trees a children's picture book written and illustrated by Shel Silverstein. There you uh, go. So nice one. yeah, little uh, little segue. Um, my my kids uh, earlier this week were listening to a bunch of uh, Doctor Hook, uh, and uh, Shel Silverstein wrote most of the uh, Doctor Hook uh, lyrics and songs. Did you know that? Wait, what? Yeah. No, that can't be true. Yeah, no, it's totally true. That's uh, that, that just can't be true, man. That's uh, I. That's just you're that you're just making stuff up. I'm now. not. I'm not. It's in the. It's it, it's in the. It's, it's in the Wikipedia. <laughs> Which, as we know, is never wrong. Yeah, so, uh, from Doctor <laughs> Silverstein and Doctor Hook and the Medicine Show became a great combination. Wow. Yeah. That I. I you know, who says podcasts are not educational? I'm educating you today. You uh, are. I've been educated. Also, there's some songs that are great Dr. Hook songs that are not appropriate for my kids. <laughs> uh-huh. With, with, yeah, there's, I mean, there's just some, some words and there's some uh, concepts that are uh, difficult to explain um, in, uh, in a few seconds to a seven-year-old. So, so but, but, uh-huh. great, but great music. Love, love, love us from Dr. Hook. Uh, Very good. So, uh, what was that? I was going to tell you some stuff, some stuff. Oh, 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 Hey, um, I know, I, I think we have talked about this show, but you should check it out if you haven't already. And there's, it's good, uh, travel plane viewing. 
Okay. Um, it's and it's this is like it's an old one. Um, but there's a fifth season of Arrested Development that has been just released on Netflix, and it's excellent. Uh, watched the first uh, five episodes this weekend, but but the I don't think I think you and I have talked before, but you not watched the originals that have, that aired on Fox, did you? No, so no. You should go do that. Not, yeah. Okay. It's it's uh, yep. It's worth people keep. I, people keep talking about it. Um, yeah. So yeah. They're 21 minutes. They're good for like. You know that time after you board a plane before you take off? That's okay. like that's like twenty one minutes. That's oh, okay. an, that's an episode. Huh. Okay. That, that you can watch an entire episode and you don't have to talk to anybody around you, which is my goal in all travel. And uh put your headphones on and just watch uh watch, watch the Bluth family. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I I heard a lot of people talk about this show. Um and apparently according to Wikipedia, it was a uh, a key influence on two other shows that I never watched, a Thirty Rock and Community, <laughs> which oh. people have also said are really good. Yeah. Um so I, I will tell you that what we are watching, um, and it is also not a new show, um, and there have been no new episodes released, and that is um the uh the, the Star Trek uh show Deep Space Nine. Oh, de- nice. You're going now, did you watch that in real time? Is this Re- I rewatch. I did so. So I watched it, um, and and um, my wife also watched it. Uh, but we were not a husband and wife at the time, so we both watched it separately with our separate in our separate lives uh, before our lives came together. Um, and we're both uh, kind of fans of the Star Trek, uh, as as you say. And uh, yeah, and we're we're enjoying it very much. Actually, my my son, my older son, just recently rewatched the whole the whole thing. I've been, you know, I, I follow your your older son on Twitter, and he's been he's been tweeting about it. So I I knew that. Oh, yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. He also apparently uh, reprogrammed his um, Amazon device uh, to react to computer um, uh, instead of the usual code word, and so he says uh, sometimes when he's watching the show, it, hilarity ensues. So uh, uh, that's funny. Nice. Uh, I watched Deep Space Nine when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. My dad was real. My parents are big time uh, Star Trek fans, and I, I it is like like the Beatles, something that I just kind of like. It was on, and I rebelled against it uh, mm-hmm. because they liked it, and I just mm-hmm. couldn't get into it. But maybe maybe I should revisit it. I've been thinking about revisiting the Star Trek world in general with my with my kids. But there was there was something about like my parents loved both you know both Star Trek and the Beatles to the point where I was like, I just, I hate both of these things. Um, and, uh, I, I think I've watched, uh, like since then I watched the, the re the reboot, um, with, uh, Chris Pine, I think it is as, uh, mm-hmm. as Kirk and, mm-hmm. uh, Zachary Quintos as, as Spock. I've watched a couple of those movies and I like them, but, but the, uh, the older stuff I've not, I've never watched. Again. Yeah, and and Deep Space Nine was interesting at the time because it was a it was a quite a new premise for for uh, Star Trek, I think, um, because uh, they weren't in a ship going anywhere, right? They were in a space station, uh, and it wasn't um, a Federation space station. It was it was owned. It was built by the Cardassians, who were an occupying force on Bajor, which is the the Cardassians. No, different different Cardassians. Uh, Cardassians, I think, instead of Cardassians, it's a slight uh, pronunciation difference. Yes. Um, for the longest time, I was like, why are people talking about those old aliens from Star Trek? And then I suddenly realized it was not the same people at all. So, um, but anyway, it's uh, it's very good. It's very political. There's a lot of political intrigue. I mean, there's some you know shoot shoot 'em up um, stuff, but it's uh, there's a lot of intrigue and yeah, it's 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 well done. And uh, yeah, so we're we're enjoying it. So. Nice, and it's uh, um, Kate Kate Mulgrew 
is in it from uh, right? Isn't she? Uh, well, so 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 close. Well, she, oh. I think I think she may make a guest appearance oh. as a, somebody else, but no, this is not uh, this is not Voyager. So uh-huh. Voyager is, comes after Deep Space Nine, and with Voyager, it's uh, they are uh, put in a ship and they are tossed very very far across the universe and and can't get home, uh, which is almost the exact opposite. Uh, kind of to Deep Space Nine, which is that they're in the known universe. There's a wormhole to an unknown universe, um, but they don't go anywhere. Whereas Voyager, it's right. all about the constant travel, try to get trying to get back home. Now I'm yes, yeah, okay. So both of these things were on while I was a uh, a teenager and and tried to avoid you, both of them. And you rebelled against both. Did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I remember. This is the one with. Uh, uh, the uh there's benjamin cisco cisco right who's who's a who the uh avery brooks the the uh actor is a faculty member a colleague of mine at rutgers really yeah <laughs> yeah wow. we, we hang out <laughs> we don't we don't we don't really he, he really is a faculty member at rutgers i think he's essentially semi-retired but he uh, yeah he's, he's in our um uh mason Gross uh, school of the arts oh no way did do you ever yeah. see, you ever see him at the uh the big faculty events? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Uh, my, my, my older son uh, claims to have seen him uh, once at a local Starbucks, uh, either him or someone who looked a lot like him. Oh. Uh, and he, I think he made some, some joke about um, uh, tea, Earl Grey hot or something, I think, <laughs> if I remember the story correctly. Oh, well, that's... I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, I, uh, so yeah. speaking of running into uh, people at, at coffee shops, um, I, I, uh, my, I guess my claim, my not claim to fame, but my closest celebrity, um, person that I've ever seen is, um, the guy who plays, um, and where's it? What's his name? Guy who plays, uh, Buster on Arrested Development. And of course I can't uh, find him cast members. Uh, Tony Hale, Buster oh, Bluth. Okay. He was also in Veep. Uh, he was at a donut Another show. show. I don't watch. <laughs> I w- uh, watch that show because it's awesome. Um, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, and, but he was at a <laughs> a lot of old Star Trek to catch up on. Right, it. right, yeah, yeah. This new stuff. Busy. Well, you get, I'm very busy. Um, there was a what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so I saw him at a at a coffee shop in Durham, and I was like, he was behind us in line, and I I didn't want to like make a big deal about it, so I just tweeted at him. And said, "Were you in Durham today?" And he said, "Yes." And the donuts were delicious. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was con- it was confirmed. Tony Hale. Yes. Um, cool. So, all right. Well, there's that's that. Uh, <laughs> got got all of our so check Skype. So we, we talked about Skype. <laughs> We've talked about uh, uh, the popular culture or old popular culture, oh. as the case may be. Yep. Um, and then uh, uh, with greatness. I think our NPR listeners have just started joining us now because they've fast forwarded. Uh, to this point, right? We can, we can only hope. Okay. Oh, speaking of NPR, um, uh, I was on the Canadian NPR, which we talked about. Yes. Um, but uh, actually, thanks to uh, one of my friends on Twitter, uh, I, I didn't actually listen to the episode um, because I was there. Uh, but what I what I listened to most recently was listener feedback, um, which was which was very nice. I was like, you know, is this the 
audio equivalent of, of never read the comments, but but actually uh, really really nice. Uh, we'll make a, we'll put a link to uh, the the follow up. Apparently, apparently uh, Canadians have uh, some strong opinions about the five second rule. And but it was very so. I th- I was thinking about this before the podcast. So it was it was it was very nice because I'm sure that CBC listeners are very nice and very polite because they're Canadian. And then on top of that, you have the curating process that's being done by CBC. And those folks are also very nice and very Canadian. And so the feedback was, was very nice and it was humorous. And, uh, and I could find it because uh, the, the person that tweeted at me uh, gave us a timestamp. So, so, well, so thanks. that's pretty cool. And um, yeah, the, people, the M- CBC listeners are kind of like NPR listeners. Mm. Um, as well. That's my, my insight of, uh, living in both countries, um, is that, uh, I think it's a similar, uh, similar, similar group of folks. Mm. Oh, and, and yeah. And so I want to specifically, uh, say thanks to S J H underscore Canada, uh, who, is, yes. uh, who is the, uh, Twitter, uh, follower that, uh, provided, provided that. So, so thanks for that. Uh, S J H. Can I call you S? <laughs> <laughs> um, S J H underscore Canada is, uh, one of one of the best uh one of our best twitter engagers uh Indeed. yeah absolutely cool um so we i mean there's a bunch of stuff that i that i want to talk about um the first thing i want to talk about though is not uh, i mean surprisingly something that's not in our uh dropbox folder but i i'm going to give you it's a warning it's not i'm not mm-hmm. warning you i'm giving <laughs> giving you uh if something happens like our internet goes out or my connection goes away or something really loud happens. Um, it's because the, um, kitchens that I've been talking about for the last, I don't know, two years or 18 months, um, are currently being built directly underneath me. And these are the, um, what, what are, um, uh, what are titled or, or, um, the, being called, not being called, they are called, uh, the Eloise Kofer, uh, teaching and research kitchens, um, and, uh, we have a, um, a donor who's, uh, you know, meant, who, who, who's provided a, a bunch of funding for this project. Um, they, th- there are walls going up. There are like drywall, there's uh, electric work. There's a transformer being installed. There's plumbing. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a regular, uh, HGTV home reno type thing, but it's happening right below my office. Um, wow! Yeah, so it's it's really really exciting. We we're only a, a few weeks away from completion. Uh, it's not a, um, a a a huge renovation. We're really lucky. Um, I think I might have mentioned, but we had a, a storage area in my building, and so we are are building these kitchens inside of a a shell that was just a, an open concrete uh, storage area. Um, and so we'll have three. Um, consumer style kitchens that are about 200 square feet each. And then a large teaching kitchen where we'll be able to house about 30 people in seats with a whole bunch of videos that are the video capability that we'll be able to show people in the room, sort of that like, um, cooking show over top overhead, uh, um, angle look, and then also broadcast, uh, things out on, on the YouTube and Facebook live and all that good stuff. So it's, it's really, really exciting, but it also might mean that they hit a wire and our power goes out. So I'm, I'm just giving you the heads up. 
All right, but they're not planning on hitting a wire, so your power goes out. Correct. Just, correct. It could happen. I mean, anything could happen. I mean, they Any- could they could they could loosen you know the something in the ceiling joists, yep. um, who, which which I think are an actual thing, and you could like fall through, you know, humorous style fall through to the to the next floor, and you know, right, right. Uh, like with, you know, d- concrete dust coming up, and you know, yeah, that would be hilarious if this was a video podcast. <laughs> well, it would be awesome. Yeah, it could be like like a Bugs Bunny sequence with uh, Daffy Duck uh, pulling the trap door and uh, an anvil falling on my head or something or something like that. Uh, yeah, so that's that's all going on, and it's pretty uh, it's pretty exciting. I don't. I'll, I'll send I'll send some pictures, and soon we'll be able to uh, link to a website that describes it. But um, yeah, we're re- we're really excited. It's every day is a kitchen day. Um, but between ordering things to meet our um, year-end fiscal year-end budget uh, requirements, um, and making decisions on finishes and tiles and um, the AV equipment and you know a whole bunch of stuff. It's it's been a it's an ama- amazing project to be part of. It's really exciting. We have a really awesome team that's been um, that's been working on this. Um, my department head, Carolyn Dunn, uh, and, uh, her executive ex- uh, assistant, um, in our departmental, um, uh, r- really the glue that keeps our department together. Her name is Jerry Bichelle. The three of them or the two of them and me, we've been, uh, working on this project, uh, uh for, for a long time. And, and so it's kind of cool to walk down every couple hours and see like something new, like a pantry went up today. So it was very, very cool. Wow. Yeah. It's really and and almost as we've been sitting here, um, we've been uh, we've been talking here for about twenty minutes, and I've had nine emails related to the kitchen <laughs> already today. Already today, there's stuff going on. We're working with. And I'm learning stuff, Don, that I didn't know. I I know all about now the uh, two twenty two twenty one whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. I know all about that now. Um, I also know. Uh, the, the, here, here's some fun, fun things. I don't think we've talked about this, but we had to buy a transformer. Did I mention this in a previous no, podcast? Okay. No. And because, not, not the, not the robot kind that's in the movies, a right? different kind of transformer. Yes. Yes. Because, and so this is something that I they'll learn. So, pa, so, uh, electricity or hydro as it's known in Canada, uh, but the uh, electricity and power that comes into your home or comes into a building, an office building like where, where I'm at or even an on-campus building uh, comes in at uh, different voltages and it needs to be transformed down to um, – so it comes in at like 4, 440 and it needs to be transformed down to um, 110 or 120, which is what our normal plugs run off of. Right. Um, but then also – where our kitchen's coming, uh, kind of exciting, uh, is that we have um, uh, ovens that run, and the standard for like an office building is to have two hundred eight, and right, oven, right. ovens run at two forty. Oh, okay. So um, your home has a transformer. Well, not really, but there's one outside uh, that'll transform this high voltage down. Okay. Um, Office large complexes like this in, in apartment buildings don't have that, and so we had to buy a transformer that will uh, it, because we don't want people roasting a turkey or a chicken uh, in a um, two oh you know two oh eight uh, 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 oven and have it be take really like double the amount of time 
um, if we're going to try and test a recipe or do an observation. We want it to be as, uh, as close as possible to what people have in their own homes. So we, yeah, it took like, we had to do a bunch of research on, on this and a transformer is not a, not a cheap thing. I mean, relatively cheap, but, uh, but also it's kind of a pain, um, in trying to put it together. Uh, not not put it together like I don't know like an IKEA kind of thing, but uh-huh. I, but I mean like fit it into the plans and have someone install it. So yeah, so I'm learning all about transformers. Well, I did the the 208 thing did come up because uh, we so we have a minus 80 uh, freezer in our lab, um, and it died, uh, and I'm in the process of getting a new one. In fact, uh, the purchasing people owe me an email. Uh, they do promise uh, one working day turnaround, and so we're we're coming up on the the deadline for that. Um, and apparently, the the kind that we need is uh, 208, which I didn't even know was like a thing for a, a voltage for a thing, but apparently it is. So. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's it's a thing, and it's a, becomes a pain in the, in, in the ass again. Mm. Um, yeah, so I know all these things that I didn't, you know, d- build some kitchens and you know, learn about. Um, and uh, the best thing that I've ordered, Don, as part of this pro- mm. project, is something called a trapzilla. <laughs> that's not a real thing. It's a that's real thing. Be a made up thing, it, right? Yeah, no, it's a, it's Godzilla but with a trap. Uh, a trapzilla is a uh, it's a grease trap. So you don't. Oh, up, okay. Yeah, sure. I didn't know this, uh, but it's yeah. So you don't end up. It's a super capacity interceptor, so uh, you don't throw a bunch of uh, grease down the uh, d- down into the water. Uh, you know, in, into whatever your 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 sewage, uh, and <laughs> then get blockages. So yeah, yeah, we've been we've been looking at all this stuff. So. <sighs> Um, anyway, so that might happen and we may hear like loud noises and hopefully no one drills into my foot as they're, uh, installing things <laughs> directly below me. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. I took that my shoes off. So I, I mean, it's, I'm basically walking unprotected around here. Uh, uh, Hey, so speaking of pantries, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I I, I want to move to to something that's that has caught my eye, okay. Um, that is kind of kind of interesting uh, to me, and it was something that I put into our um, our super. It's not super secret, but our <laughs> our own uh, our area where we uh, where we share stuff, and yes. um, it was a really in, like so. This is from uh, June first over the weekend. Um, I guess it was on Friday, uh, four salmonella cases linked to chicken from Ruby's pantry sites. Okay. And, um, Ruby's pantry sites, uh, is our, um, uh, like a network of food pantries in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And for these four individuals have salmonella, um, because they were provided with a raw breaded chicken product that looked fully cooked. But oh, had no here we go again. Yeah, had no cooking instructions on the label stating the chicken was raw. Um, yep. But this is really the, to me. This is a really interesting one because it's in a in my state. It would be a not regulated area, yeah. right? Okay. So, so mm-hmm. um, it, it's not commercial food. And I think that um, from my understanding, and hopefully there's some super smart policy folks that that listen that can either verify or or um, say that I'm wrong. I think that FSIS does still have jurisdiction over these products. 
because uh, they're meat and poultry products. Um, but there's not a proactive way to enforce rules. And so we did we did a bunch of work on on food pantries a, um, a few years ago. Um, and I spoke about this at the meeting that you were at uh, here in, in North Carolina, um, the governor's task force on food safety and defense back in May. But Ashley Chaffetz, who's one of my former graduate students and now works at USDA FNS, um, she went out and spent a bunch of time in food pantries in North Carolina uh, looking at infrastructure, food safety infrastructure. Do people get trained? Do, um, you know, do they know about recalls? How do they find stuff out? And what, what we found sort of generally, and I'll, we'll link to the, the paper, is that if, if a food pantry is part of a Feeding America network site, then they, they generally know a lot more about food safety than if it was a, um, a, a, a small independent pantry that might run out of a church basement that's not considered to be, quote, a partner agency. And um, the more that Ashley spent time with managers of both types of pantries, the more we, we found out that um, that certain things that we didn't even know were happening in pantries or didn't even think to ask about were, were happening. And one of those things was taking large bulk amounts of meat and cutting them down or repacking them into smaller servings that a family can take from, from the pantry. And I say cutting it down. I mean, essentially, in, in a couple of spots, there were people that were taking a, you know a side of beef and a, a large primal cut, and a volunteer on a table in the basement of a of a church was cutting those into smaller pieces that could be then wrapped in butcher paper or put into Ziploc bags and, and distributed to to those who who need need food. Um, and and I wonder if. This outbreak is is like that, where a large maybe um, maybe these pantries got a, a large bulk shipment of frozen patties that had cooking instructions, or they were you know uh, on the the original packaging, or they were destined for food service, and there was cooking instructions that that came along with the with the shipment, but then ended up um, being broken down into you know eight chicken patties per per bag, and none of that information got transferred. Um, to the individuals who took it home. Um, and it's, I, I don't, I mean, I'm just uh, speculating and, and sometimes our listeners get, or people that we uh, talk, uh, talk to on uh, Twitter get all excited about us speculating, but that's kind of what we do. Um, and the, I, I don't know, this one's, this one's really, really fascinating. Cause again, like you said, it's a raw poultry product that looks like it's cooked and it's at a pantry and it doesn't have chicken or cooking instructions. I just think it's a fascinating um, uh, outbreak. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would, I would agree. And I, these ones that sort of seem to fall in between um, the cracks in terms of uh, regulatory uh, jurisdiction are are always uh, quite interesting. So, um, yeah, and I think that this whole area of food pantries, and you know, we talked before about donations to food pantries, and there's going to be a CFP issue um, on that. Uh, I mean, I think it's just, it's super important, right? And we're, there's a lot of interest now around food waste and how we can make sure that um, <clears throat> we do a better job of, of not wasting food, but at the same time, we have to be safe and we have to make sure that the people um, in these, in that, that eat the foods that come from these pantries are, are in fact, uh, are in fact safe. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, we've talked to um, 
regulators who, especially on the on the local level, who who the who have the tools and knowledge to help um, the you know pantries make good food safety decisions, but don't have the um, regulatory jurisdiction to even dedicate their resource and time to go do it, which I find you know you know fascinating. I guess is a, is a word uh, one of the words for it, but also like kind of um, you know. Uh, frustrating, I guess, uh, because there there are lots of lots of folks who who could could help make this this food safer. Not that it's all that unsafe in in the in the first place, but um, you know, can can help with with best practices. So it's yeah, it's an area that I'm I'm kind of I'm I continue to be interested in and I'm passionate about because the you know, very group that needs food the most and maybe. Um, in situations where they can't afford healthcare or are exposed to uh, the risk of foodborne illness because of their um, social or medical situations, are, are the ones that that are you know getting potentially getting food that um, is is outside the regulatory world, and um, it, it's this I think really fascinating um, uh, situation, complicating complicated situation. Um, yeah. So, so I want to talk a little bit about um, something that happened um, over the um, the holiday weekend, um, and yes. it w- it got its start um, with a tweet um, from uh, Scott Gottlieb, um, who is um, uh, an official with the FDA. He's a political appointee at the at the S- at the FDA, and um, and you and I had an interaction. And then I had another interaction with another individual uh, on Twitter, which didn't go so well. <laughs> so um, I would I would like to, to talk about this. Um, so uh, so the the first tweet uh, is uh, what started it all was it was a tweet from Scott Gottlieb who says, um, "Remember, hamburgers should be cooked to 160 degrees Fahrenheit." And then for more barbecue tips, uh, here's a link to an FDA uh, page, you know, FDA consumer page, um, which was great. Like I, I, I retweeted that and I and I hearted that uh, that tweet. And then um, and then Gottlieb writes, "If a thermometer isn't available, make sure hamburgers are brown." All all the way through, not pink. Uh, chicken should be cooked to at least 165. If you partially cook food in the microwave oven or stove to reduce grilling time, do so immediately before the food goes on the hot grill. So there's some good advice in there, uh, but there's also some some bad advice. Um, and and I, I also commented on that, and I think I retweeted it with a with a you know at uh, um, uh, uh, at adding you um, on that. Um, and obviously we know that there's not much, uh, there's not much to scientific support um, for the statement that, um, you know, just make sure your hamburgers are brown. So, so what did you, so what did you think about, what did you, th- did you take a look at, do you follow uh, S. Gottlieb FDA I do. On, on Twitter? And, and what did you think about this? So, I mean, I, I, I thought um, this is not uh out of step with some of the other comments that uh, other federal um, appointee folks have have made, or even folks within um, FSIS. There's uh, a slide that I use in um, in, in my talks when we when, when it uh, when I tell a story about ordering 
hamburgers, um, undercooked hamburgers or medium rare hamburgers at, at restaurants uh, around um, an outbreak that was happening back in 2011 uh, linked to Wolverine packing where um, someone from Brian Ronholm from FSIS said, um, cook your hamburgers to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, or if you're ordering out at a restaurant, make sure you, you order them um, well done. And that I, I've challenged that um, message multiple times and, and sort of bring it up as, as this whole, because we did a whole bunch of ordering hamburgers well done, and, and there's no temperature that's associated with it. And we took a bunch of pictures of well-done hamburgers. And, and although, I mean, the limitations of color uh, on safety that I don't even want to focus on, on that, but I, uh, all I wanted to show when I, when I show these pictures are when you order well done, there's a lot of variability of what that looks like. And then in turn, probably what that temperature is. That's the, the point that I, that I try to make with, with the stories. And so, um, you know, to, to me, it's, you know, it, 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 we fall into, if we start making these messages or um, making these messages that aren't science-based or keep making them, then we fall into this, this trap. And I, I think the, the message really needs to be, you know, going back to Scott Gottlieb's um, original tweet, it should really say, um, it should be cooked if it's chicken. It should be cooked to 165, and if it's ground beef, it should be cooked to 160 degrees or 155 for 15 seconds or whatever time temperature combination you want to um, want to make. But let's not and and let's not even um, l- let's not ignore the color, but actually go ahead and say um, hamburgers that are brown all the way through and not pink don't aren't an indicator of the temperature. So th- that that's my. You know my sort of a, a approach on this, but I, I also don't think like so. I'm looking at Scott's message and then going back to uh, Brian Ron, Ron Holmes' message from a few years ago. I, I, th- I think we get into no one wants to go to a restaurant and order something that's cooked 160 degrees. Um, and I say no one. I mean I do, but but I think that that's a harder sell to. Uh, to, to consumers. So, so the easy thing is, oh, we'll just order it well done and trust that the, um, the, the, the kitchen takes well done and equates that to over 160 degrees. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that that's the case. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. No, it does. It does. So, so, but, the, and that's, and that was an interesting discussion. And, um, but then, um, uh, then it goes on from there, and so I don't know. I don't know wh- how I saw this tweet. I think I, the reason why I saw the tweet that I'm going to talk about in a minute is I thought I was following this person. It turns well, and I am following them now, but but at the time I was not following them, uh, and I think it's because. <clears throat> A lot of people that that I follow also follow this person, and so somebody may perhaps retweeted it, or maybe I don't know. I can't figure out Twitter. Maybe it was because I um, had had liked uh, the Gottlieb tweet. But anyway, so so again, so so Gottlieb's tweet. Remember, it says, "Remember, hamburgers should be cooked to 160 Fahrenheit." Uh, and there's a person um, that says uh, retweets that and says, "Yeah, don't do this." <laughs> right, right. So. Um, and and the person um, is, is a real really interesting fellow. Um, uh, his name is J Kenji Lopez Alt, and uh, he has a, a website 
uh, called the Food Lab, um, or at least I think it's all right. So yeah. it's a the Food Lab is a column on the Serious Eats uh, website, and we'll link to we'll link to uh, Lopez Alt's uh, website. Um, and uh, he's and I he's he's essentially a chef, but he's kind of got an interesting uh, background. If you if you do a little bit of googling, it's not on his website, but basically his his parents are both uh, academics. Um, I think his dad is a microbiologist um, uh, and his mom is an immunologist or something. He went to MIT, I think, and studied architecture, but then, you know, basically fell in love with cooking and kind of has a sort of like a, a younger, hipper Alton Brown, I would I would describe him as. Maybe he wouldn't like to be described that way, but that's 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 kind of a way to describe him. And so so basically, like he and I got into it. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, and I don't and it's because of the way Twitter works. It's a little hard. Uh, we'll link to to his tweet and you can see me in his replies um but uh but basically you know we 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 got into this um and 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 it didn't it didn't end particularly well and and i'm not sure that either one of us was really happy with this um so uh somebody somebody jumps in um uh well somebody says uh this guy should read his own uh seven log time temperature tables i guess that's somebody basically telling gottlieb he should read the usda Appendix A, and I pointed out it's USDA, not FDA. Um, and then, um, anyway, the, um, Lopez Alt says it doesn't make them any less true. Um, uh, somebody uh, 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 links in Bill Marler, and I said Bill, Bill will gladly sue the markets. And so, the, what uh, what the, uh, the 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 chef's recommendation is is to get uh, fresh ground beef from a good market. Or get a whole cut and grind it yourself and cook to medium rare. And so, um, I uh, and again, so our discussions kind of went uh, went from there. Uh, but basically, his his idea was that um, you have lower risk, or you you essentially. I guess if I was to be fair about it, his argument is it's lower risk if you grind your own meat. And and I think I think I'm in agreement with that. I just don't think it's as low risk as people think it is. And I tried to I tried to engage him with science, but it was Friday on Memorial Day weekend and I was uh I was just, you know, playing fast and loose and I had had a drink or two and 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 I really didn't want to like I didn't really want to go and do this like the serious science heavy lifting to have a serious conversation. And so I I guess I was probably a little, um, uh, a little. I, I was not. I was not in my in my best form. Let's say. And then I ended up by saying, "Hey, look, you know, obviously we we disagree. We should uh, maybe we should have uh, maybe we should have a discussion uh, on the podcast because I think it would be a good it would be good." And he was like, "Well, no, because you ambush me and you're you're saying things that's not true, and I won't." put myself in that situation on the podcast. And I was like, okay, whatever. Uh, and then my, so my, 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 pers- my, the way I left it uh, with myself was that I was going to write a blog post, um, and, and do some actual risk calculations. Um, and of course I haven't done that because that would actually take time and effort. And I've been doing other things that are actually, you know, part of a, a paying, a paying, paying gig, right. what they pay me to do. But I'm still really interested in this topic. Um, but I, I kind of, I feel mostly, I just feel regret that I, that I had what could have been, I, I thought a good interaction and it just didn't, it just didn't go well. And, and again, it, of course it brought out all sorts of people, uh, including people who, you know, were perfectly happy to throw Gottlieb under the bus, uh, because he's a Trump appointee. And, and, and honestly, I think he's probably 
one of the the better uh, Trump appointees because he does seem to be tr- kind of sort of trying to do stuff um, based based on science. Um, but but anyway, in, in the end, it was an unsatisfactory uh, interaction, and I'm just not really sure what I could have uh, what I could have done uh, recently. And of course, there's lots of people that just sort. I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to have uh, a Twitter discussion with somebody that has like you know orders of magnitude more followers than you because then all of his followers start jumping on and and pounding on you and and you know and then people did come to to my defense but it again it just, the whole thing just didn't didn't end particularly well and i'm still kind of unhappy with how i handled it but anyway that's so that was my uh, twitter adventures uh uh two weekends ago well i i sat back and watched this um <laughs> unfold uh on, on the uh on the twitter and i wasn't i wasn't much help to you um at all other than uh jumping on the on the gottlieb stuff and um I, I wonder. I mean, so there's two things uh, uh, come to mind here. Uh, I, for someone who is, um, you know, very much into the the science of cooking, um, you know, that's kind of what the food lab's all about. Uh, I don't. I don't. I've not read. Um, I'm not read his book, but I'm gonna. Uh, Carolyn, my uh, Carolyn Dunn, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, she has this book in her office. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go get it and take a look at this, um, over the next couple of weeks. I, I, and I, I don't know, I guess I don't know enough about, um, where, where he's coming from. I think you and I come at this and me increasingly and you, you more, um, historically come at this as let's, when, when you see a comment like, um, get fresh ground beef from market or get a whole cut and grind it yourself to cook it medium rare. Um, you and I look at that and go, okay, that I think they're saying, or, you know, I think J. Kenji Lopez all is saying that will be a lower risk way to, to, to make ground beef. And, right. and that comes with calculations, right? Like that comes with, okay, what is it about that process that changes, uh, getting prepackaged, um, ground beef that was ground in the same way? at a grocery store versus ground beef that was ground at a, at a processing plant or, or a, a, you know, a meat packing, packing plant. Um, and there are, I mean, it's, it is a kind of a complicated process. I, I think, I, I think we should do two things here. I think one, we really should reach out and maybe through, um, direct message and, and not on, on Twitter to see if we can have a conversation with him on the podcast and two, we, we should probably try similar to what you've done with the five second rule. Let's answer this question. Is it riskier or less risky or the same risk? Or is the, is it a practical risk difference versus a, um, a a calculated risk difference? And there, there are some things that I question, I guess a little bit about, getting a whole cut and grinding it myself, uh, versus ground, ground, raw, um, raw ground beef that was pre-ground is that whole cut is if it's got sugar toxin producing E. coli on it, it's not an adulterant. And so I'm less, it's, 
it's only for the you know non intact and, and ground that someone is really out there looking to make sure that it doesn't have the pathogen in it. So I don't have a good sense, and you know probably the beef industry has a much better sense than than I do. But I think if we go down this road, we we need to investigate it. Is like what is the load and prevalence of um, a human pathogen on a quote a, a whole cut from a good market? What does that even look like? And, and, you know, and, and, and then, and then start there. So I don't know. Yeah. And, and I would say, so, and, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, that I dug into in preparation for this, um, uh, is this, the statement that, uh, ground beef has, um, you know, every burger has meat from 283 cows in it or something. And, and I did a little bit of digging to try to figure out what the, the truth was behind that particular statement and ended up not, not finding a whole lot. And that raises more questions for me, but I would say, you know, if you if you really love the idea of a rare burger, honestly, rather than buying a single cut and grinding it yourself, um, just buy buy whatever you want and grind it for sure. But but sous vide it first, right? Like yeah. sous vide it uh, to 130 for two hours. Or again, don't 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 quote me on that. But look, do your own research. Give it a, a six log, seven log reduction. Using sous vide uh, at a low temperature, so that so that and then and then grind it up and hell, just eat that, right? You don't even you don't even have to to put it on the grill if you don't want, right? Or 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 put it on the grill and char the outside, um, because that is going to be if you really like a rare burger, that is a much I I, I would I would say is a much um, more uh, much uh, provable lower risk practice than grinding your own, right? And if you're going to go to the trouble to grind your own meat anyway, then probably you you would be willing to do sous vide um, because you're a nerd and you like that. And so to me, that's the where the real – if you like – meat that is rare that sous vide is the answer to that right as long as you as long as you follow time temperature rules yeah right right or and i i just uh, sent you a link to, to one of the products that we've talked about in the past grab some irradiated beef from wegmans <laughs> right 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 well except i think uh the food uh purists would say well i don't want that and i know people have said for sure that the irradiated beef uh definitely has a uh, funky smell so um uh can you oh, i can i'm good uh, okay i am um, my my um is diamond uh, dave there diamond dave is here so can we uh can we just uh can you can you can you can you vamp for a few minutes Oh, I can. I why do, I, do you want me to do a little sh- soft shoe? Yeah, up here. Go for it. Why don't I'll, 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 we'll, we'll just go on pause and you go. You you deal with Diamond Dave. All right, I'll be right there. All right. Okay, I'm I'm back and my uh, lovely wife is talking to Diamond Dave. It doesn't look like David Lee Roth. <laughs> is, are you sure? Does I didn't it, get. A, I'll I'll take a photo later if I if I have a chance. But I'm pretty sure it's not the same guy. I mean, I can't be 100 percent sure, Ben. You can never be 100 percent sure of anything. Right. Well, does it is. <laughs> It, do you think that maybe Diamond Dave looks different after spending the last six years in Tokyo? Like, there's different styles there. That's true. It's true. He's got he does have that kind of shaved head look, um, you know, which which is not how I picture David Lee Roth. I, well, yeah, I mean, he had some awesome, awesome hair back in the day. 
Um, he did. Well, maybe he's maybe he's you know that's a popular thing for people to uh, uh, to donate that to charity. Maybe maybe he did the you know like uh, our buddy uh, Julian Cox. Uh, yeah, you know, grows his hair long and then he donates it to cancer kids. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, could be. We I have a friend who did that uh, as as well. All right. Well, Diamond Dave. Cool. Glad Diamond Dave's there. Uh, yeah. So so anyway, I, what do you now? I've had some time. I didn't uh, I didn't just talk to the listeners without you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I've had some, some time to think about it. What if, what if we did this? What if we went to, um, uh, I, I wonder, I don't know who the, who the group would be that's interested in this, but maybe it's, um, the, you know, NAMI, the National American Meat Institute, something like that. North, North American. Whatever. National American sounds yeah. like a uh, real geography. Uh, or, um, or someone, it could be could be even FMI, the Retailers Association, who's like, "Hey, don't grind your stuff at home, just buy our ground beef," um, and say, "Would you would you like us to help answer this question of this this myth?" Or maybe it's not even a myth. Maybe it's it's just this um, this uh, social given that's grind your own; it's safer, and and do it with some science and answer it, and then. But but I would I do like I do want to reach out to to Jay Kenji Lopez and mm-hmm. and 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 see if he wants to um, engage with you. I do think where it all went wrong uh-huh. is <laughs> was drinking. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. No, drink. no. no. I, I think it was. I think it was this. You stick to the chef and I'll do the science. I think that well, was it. Well, I, it wasn't. That's not exactly what I said, right? What yeah. I what I I think what I said was I, I, let me quote I, I won't yeah. tell you how to be a chef and you don't tell me how to do science okay <laughs> yeah which I think is legitimate because he was telling me about science yeah. right I mean it was a little bit of a uh, I was being a little bit of a uh, an ass but but I but he was like I felt like he I mean yeah I I get I get why that maybe now in the clear light <laughs> in the spot day. now yeah, yeah. And, well um, and, and I think that he probably. Um, you know, based on what I know about a few of the articles that I've read of his before, and I wasn't following him on Twitter, same as you, I wasn't following him on Twitter before this exchange, but I had seen him retweeted tons of times. I don't know why I wasn't following him, yeah. um, but I, I think he he definitely would see himself, especially when it looks at the food lab. It's better home cooking through science, as as he he understands science. So you know what I mean? Like I, I could see how he could m- misread the tweet of. You're you're a chef. You don't know anything about science, which is not what you said. Not what I said. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I could see how how that could um, how he, he could see that. So um, yeah. So I think we should I think we should reach out to him. And well, uh, he, yeah. here's the thing. Uh, let me. I still feel like I need to do my homework, which is to yeah. do a little bit of a risk assessment um, and and get some and get some data to try to inform the process. Um, and if you want to, re- I feel like I've reached out to him like a couple times, yeah. and he's still like no. So you, maybe you, as the as the the nice one, um, the good cop, the good cop. Uh, if yeah. you want to reach out to him um, and and engage with him, that's fine. I think I need to. I, I really feel like I need to go do my homework um, uh, so that I have something to say because I did sort of promise i would go and do that and and i haven't done that yet so yeah let's do let's do that and then let's think about how we might answer that question right with beyond a um the risk assessment homework that you're that you're doing like i things that i don't know about that that i think would um go into this is if someone's gonna go grind their own meat what kind of meat are they gonna use and how do they actually grind it and 
what what does that you if you were if you were of the ilk of someone who's going to grind their own meat and cook a medium rare hamburger, what temperature do you cook that to? And, you know, he suggested 130, but is that like all of that stuff on, you know, could, um, can be stuff that we do on, on our side of things to help inform that. Right. And, and well, and I think the other uh, folks that, that we ought to engage on, on the science side of this would be with your, your two uh, good friends, um, John Luchansky and Anna Porto Fett. Oh, uh, uh, take a drink, everybody. Here we go. Uh, uh, because, uh, like they, they, you know, have have some some data on this, and they do have contacts at USDA FSIS, and you know, and I we did I did a little bit of the kind of risk calculations uh, based on USDA data uh, because um, for our the Schaffner and Schaffner paper on cross contamination from frozen burgers, yeah, right? Uh, because I had to calculate the probability that there would be a uh, a E. coli cell on the outside of a of a of a of a, a burger patty, um, and so and but those data, even when I use those data, which I think was back in 2010, those data were several years out of date, and I don't know if USDA has new data. And of course, the data on uh, pathogen prevalence in ground beef um, is for ground beef, not for whole cuts. And you know, so we we would need to. I mean, you can always just you know make assumptions about uh, you know, prevalence and, and concentration. Um, and I know there are data out there on uh, the effect of grinding. And so you could probably build a cross-contamination model that would simulate a contaminated piece of meat moving through a grinder and how many subsequent you know, uh, cuts moving through that grinder would become contaminated. And so, I mean, I think that there's some things uh, that, you know, you have to make some assumptions, but I think you could probably do a, a passable job at a pretty simple risk assessment. The problem is it's just even a simple risk assessment is going to take like a couple days worth of time. And right. I just, I don't know if, I mean, it's not a, we don't I mean, it was, it was right a now. super, it, well, it was a super high priority for me uh, immediately after the Twitter exchange. <laughs> and and the, the, as more and more days go by, I'm like, yeah, I'm not as interested in that. I mean, I, I'm still thinking about it. So, um, uh, but yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, let's let's come back to this, and I'll uh, okay. I'll reach out to my, uh, my 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 two friends. Who, by the way, um, John had uh, emailed me right before we got on today, saying, "Hey, can you chat?" And I was like, "I said I'm about to record a podcast." And his text message back to me was, um, "I will read uh, directly directly quote, um, say hi to Don." <laughs> oh, and the podcast faithful, and he said, "We're doing our part to keep our our food supply safe." Which is true, nice. uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so John, I think has turned into a a bit of a closet food safety talk listener. Um, oh, and I have to say, in terms of food safety talk uh, listeners, I um, I met. Uh, the guy who is uh, now running our Food Innovation Center South, um, uh, which is where my ex-wife works. Um, and it uh, turns out he's a listener. And I was uh, – whenever I meet like a real person in the real, in the real oh, world so weird. that's – that listens. That's like not just like it's fine. Like if graduate students listen, or you know, like like I feel like that's okay. Like that's our audience. But when an actual real person who has a real grown-up job um, listens, I immediately my thoughts are, oh, I wonder what I said that was terribly embarrassing that I shouldn't have talked about. Yeah, right, <laughs> that's, right. And that's immediately my first reaction. Me too. Me too. And I don't think we'll ever get over that. Um, <laughs> well, and that's probably okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, oh, that's cool. Well, good shout out to um, to listeners. Uh, I mean, speaking of which, feedback wise, um, we, uh, we we've got uh, some feedback here. 
Um, okay, so there's there, there's a, a fun one uh, from someone who says you can read my message but not my name, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they uh, have uh, coined their own uh, name uh, as Deep Brazilian Cheese Bread or Pio de Queijo. Did I? Did I <laughs> how did how did that go? Is that I am, really uh, my, I am. We need to get a Portuguese person to 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 say that for us. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I think so. I'm pretty sure that was that, that was in my best Portuguese accent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, which is which is not very good. It's, no, it's, it's it's good as mine. It's terrible. It's terrible. Um, so uh, deep Brazilian cheese bread uh, writes. You can read my name, but not my message, uh, which is a great joke. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and so here, this this is a really quite involved. Um, message and not, uh, and this is, these are the types of messages that I think that we'd love, love to get. So don't, don't cut, don't cut stuff down because it gives us all the, the background info, but we are going to paraphrase, uh, for the, for the purpose of radio. Um, and, uh, so, uh, uh, deep Brazilian cheese bread says I do not do anything with food currently, but I really enjoy the science implementation puzzle that food safety presents us. And I'm about a third of the way through your podcasts. Um, and this is the, uh, in, in reference to the unicorn sighting, uh, uh, he says, I'm the food safety unicorn you've been searching for. I work in it, but run a small cookie bread cake production out of my home. Um, and was asked to, uh, um, to work at a local brewery to set up a tasting a testing and quality lab. Um, he, he goes on and addresses a bunch of things that, that we've talked about. One blockchain, um, and, uh, again, straight out of his email message, be very confident in your assumption that blockchain won't help a stitch in solving your supply chain tracking. It will only guarantee that any transaction that has been made has not been altered. Great. Um, I want to come back to this. Well, actually let's, let's jump into this right now. Um, there was a fantastic FDA blog post, um, that was, uh, related to the, traceability um question around uh this romaine um lettuce outbreak that that i i agree so much that blockchain might not have helped uh here because uh there's a fantastic figure that we'll link to in um show notes that shows um the it was entitled the master traceback diagram and it shows um multiple fields going through almost 20 or 20 ranches to five different grower harvesters to three different processors to five different distribution centers um, and to uh, four other uh, secondary distribution centers to um, almost 20 point of sales for all the product that was coming out of Yuma and not all of it. Every one of these cha- these links um, has missing information, which is recorded as informational data. So the data, the blockchain is, isn't the issue. It's what has been written down and what's been entered. So blockchain re- requiring um, traceability records that are electronic, that are not that are actually records and not inf- quote informational data would be the step, not the blockchain that matters. Now blockchain might be the way to facilitate that. Right. And make it faster. Yeah. Right. But the, it's not going to make it enter. You, people aren't going to enter it because of blockchain. Yeah. You right. know, know what I'm saying? Yep. Absolutely. No. And this is a great, uh, this is a great uh, diagram. We'll link, uh, we'll link to the, to the, to the 
the the the blog post. I I think you sent me a link, and I think I found it already. Actually, the first place I saw this figure uh, was in a uh, a tweet from uh, Frank Giannis, who said, "Well, blockchain would make this all go faster," um, and and obviously that's true, but but it, it's not going to make people actually put in data when they they didn't put it in before. So yeah, blockchain would make the line the the solid lines fast. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the exactly. dotted lines would still be a problem. Um, yep. Yeah. So, uh, so deep Brazilian cheese bread talks about blockchain um, vinegar uh, at the end of episode 151. I believe there was a discussion about vinegar on lettuce uh, to at the minimum stunt the critters already invading your salad. You both have PhD candidates from Brazil. Um, I would be really surprised if there isn't scientific work already done in, in Portuguese in this subject. The most common method of treating vegetables in domestic small commercial restaurants setting in Brazil is, with, uh, is basically a basin filled with water. An undetermined amount of vinegar is poured in and then all the leaves are submerged in the solution for an indeterminate amount of time, which is great science happening there. Um, you can't see all the E. coli uh, dying, but the little black worms usually float to the top. Um, and then you included, I think, a whole bunch of references. Yeah. So this, so I finally got smart about how to do these, this listener feedback. Yeah, and so job. what I did, <laughs> yeah, what I did was to highlight the parts of the message that I wanted to read or that you that you could read. And I also did a little bit of research. And so not only is there is there literature in Portuguese, there's actually uh, three different articles um, in the United States uh, that I found. Um, and so I would encourage uh, people to look for those, and we will link to those uh, in show notes. But basically. What those what those articles are saying is that yeah it, it mean there is some effect of acetic acid uh, and or of vinegar um, but again it's not it's not a magic uh, bullet solution and one of the other things too that we could talk about today if we have time is um, there's a, a recent article. That's cropped up a couple times on Twitter now about chlorine in, inducing a uh, VBNC viable but non-culturable state in microorganisms uh, and pathogens, and that's a real food safety risk. And I guess my answer is, well, we've known for a long time that these compounds injure microorganisms, which will affect their recovery, and chlorine or and or acenic acid is not a solution to contamination. It's just going to knock the levels down. I mean, it's it's good. It's like hand washing. I, I keep thinking back to the hand washing analogy. This solution to norovirus is not better hand washing. It's to keep people that are sick and shedding massive amounts of virus out of the kitchen, just like this, the solution to produce safety is not a better sanitizer. It's don't let the produce get contaminated in the first place. Right, right. And because the sanitizer is not going to do everything. No, it's not going to do very much at all. I mean, it's going to it's going to it's going to reduce the risk, but it's not it's not a um, a, a way to reduce the risk a lot. But right. again, we'll link to there. Are, again, there are several articles um, uh, on acetic acid or vinegar, and in fact, this came up before too because um, I think Carl uh, Custer uh, was was talking about this with us on, on on email. And so, yeah, there's there's research out there, but it's just it's not a terribly effective means. Right. Well, and to jump to some other listener feedback. Um, on this, you had a, a really good Twitter exchange with um, Scott Lockheed, or uh, Scott is loud uh, on Twitter um, around um, some some other uh, research that was published um, uh, last week about viable but not culturable injured cells from chlorine. And I'm not going to talk too much about that part, but really. Um, something that you zeroed in on about chlorines added to wash water to prevent cross-contamination, not so much reduce contamination on produce. And Scott, who's been around the food safety world um, for for a while, 
um, you know, and, and interacted with us, uh, you know, I think uh, brought up a point of I've read a lot of, lot of academic, non-academic articles, not by microbiologists that don't seem to make that distinction clear, uh, probably ignorant of the process. I also would assume that it was for reducing contamination. And, uh, and I, you know, I think and you replied, yeah, and you had um, – uh, initially as as well um so it's it and and i i mean it's not just the um academic non-academic folks uh, i w- when i work with um folks in in the industry whether that be uh, as producers or in you know uh, increasingly my where i'm interacting with people is in um, you know, shared use kitchens, uh, small scale processing in an incubator kitchen, or um, you know, in, into retail food service. That that whole concept's lost um, has not been translated well for that audience either. That if there's chlorine there, it's it's about killing the bugs on the product, not in the water. Yep, really, you know, really interesting. Um, um so. What uh, what else did you want to talk about on uh, on uh, deep Brazilian cheese bread? Well, um, so he talks about the he gives feedback on the podcast format, um, and he says uh, he already listens to the podcast at one point seven x normal speed. So at this point, um, I, I I completely disown him. He's an animal. I uh, can't respect anything that he says. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that I, we're really just really nervous college professors in a hurry. Yeah, he, he still can't find. He says this is this is funny. We shouldn't we shouldn't cut this. He still yeah. can't find a player that makes us sound like chipmunks. Just really nervous college professors in a hurry. So, so thanks for that. I guess uh, you shouldn't you should listen at normal speed. Um, uh, you know, but that's just my that's just my strongly held opinion. Um, oh, um, he did uh, he did talk a, a little bit about um, hand washing and water temperature, which I think we've 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 covered uh, pretty well. Um, and he does he makes the point that uh, when he moved to Brazil, there was no hot water in the house other than in the shower at shower time and he realized that half the population isn't dying every day from not washing their dishes in in hot water i think definitely there is a an added benefit of uh using uh hot uh water in dishwashing and in fact it's, it's there's a really interesting discussion at the conference for food protection this year around this issue because the code specifies the temperature for wear washing right so washing plates and washing silverware the code specifies the temperature. Um, the folks from Ecolab and um, uh, other uh, sanitizer companies said, yeah, we can, we can make um, uh, wear washing soaps and sanitizers that work at any temperature, but there's no incentive for us to do that because of the temperature requirements in the code. So why would I develop a washing, uh, washing chemical solution uh, that doesn't work in hot water? Because um, the code is going to make you use hot water. And so that's, a, I think, a really – and again, we're talking about food waste. We're talking about energy usage. It takes a lot of energy to make uh, water hot. And again, this was the, the argument behind trying to uh, eliminate the hot water requirement for hand wash sinks. And, and that didn't go, right? It didn't go because people were uncomfortable with the idea of letting people wash their hands in water that's not uh, uh, 110 degrees or, or 100 degrees or whatever the, the code says. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is interesting. It's why we do the podcast because of this interface between, between science and, uh, and policy. Um, uh, he talks about responsibility and about opinions on responsibility and liability for small producers. Um, he talks about, um, the, uh, 
pretty basic yet freakishly consistent. I wonder what freakishly consistent means. But anyway, a pretty basic but freakishly consistent chocolate chip cookie um, out of his home uh, in Brazil. And he talks about, you know, a bunch of things that he did in terms of uh, food safety there. Um, and he said if he was going to do this today in the U.S., he would totally buy a water activity meter because those are awesome. So, um, oh, and so his question, he does say come to you. He colludes with a question, which yeah. I think is really good. Like, so why why would I spend hundreds or thousands of dollars buying testing equipment, per- perfecting his food safety practices, taking classes on food safety, when all I really need to do is simply uh, buy an insurance policy that will cover me? And and so first of all, we're not lawyers, uh, we're not um, uh, insurance experts, but my understanding is that those insurance policies are pretty darn expensive, and especially when you get to be a really, really big company. What a lot of big companies do is they're essentially what's called self-insured. And so they, they basically will um, uh, basically, ins- just like it sounds, they'll, they'll, they'll insure themselves. And so I think it, it can be problematic. And this is something that, that Pete Snyder has proposed from time to time about, you know, how we really should, uh, help these companies get insurance and then they should be charged lower premiums if they do things to, to help manage food safety. And so I guess the, the simple answer is yes, but the insurance people will want to get involved, just like car insurance, right? Car insurance is 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 different depending upon the the kind of coverage that you want. It's di- different depending upon your demographic. If you're a young American boy, uh, car ex- insurance is going to be very very expensive for you. If you have a fast uh, new car, uh, car insurance is going to be more expensive for you. And so. Certainly, if we if you do buy insurance uh, for your business, um, if the insurance companies are smart and they manage risk appropriately, which is their whole game, uh, they would hopefully um, uh, charge you a lot more uh, uh, premiums if you uh, didn't have a good food safety program in place. So, so that's my my two cents on that. Yeah, on the the insurance is a really interesting one for me. Maybe. Um, a decade ago, maybe even longer, I had a, I had a conversation with Marler about this while we were having lunch um, somewhere, and and I kind of posed the the same same question to him. Of I, I was looking at um, incentives for uh, businesses in the absence of regulation to do food safety better, and yeah, it, so we talked about um, okay, so. What if if I had a really good you know food safety plan and someone came in to check and great audit scores and great public health scores? How what if what if my premiums were um, were reduced? You know, right. similar to what you, what you just yeah, said. What and, I, yeah. And and ten years ago, he said it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't the the folks at insurance companies and and this was his um, his opinion based on working with insurance companies, they, they don't look at chocolate chip cookies different from raw ground beef. They look at it as food and food has some risk and it's calculated across food, not different types of food, right? Like, so the risk that you and I talk about is not the same risk that they look at. And so he said, yeah, maybe it makes a difference in a restaurant that has stellar, um, inspection scores, um, it, you know, it might make a, a premium difference of like $2 a month. Wow. Um, so it didn't, so it didn't matter. But the other thing that he pointed out was, which, which is really like, I, you know, I, I thought a lot of insight into the world that, that we talk about all of the things that, um, uh, the deep Brazilian cheese bread listed. And I'm going to go down a little bit here on, 
um, things that, that he was doing in his cookie business. Um, Swapping out eggs for powdered eggs, which were available in only one place in the city. So, you know, essentially reducing the risk with powdered eggs over fresh eggs. Um, Using stainless steel during production, uh, short expiration date to minimize growth time, lots of thermometers, hair nets, lots of record uh, keeping, um, cleaning, uh, you know, cleaning and sanitizing. Everything that, that, um, you know, the, the deep. Um, Brazilian cheese bread talks about are things that that I look like you know, really really good practices. What what Bill brought up in the conversation, and I don't you know I don't want to misquote him or, or paraphrase. So please you know uh, remember that this is like ten plus years ago. Was was similar to the conversation that we have around the Petran paper, which is there are lots of places that have a good history of food safety practices that people have looked at that still have outbreaks. And that becomes the problem in insurance because you can't look at these best practices or these audits or these, you know, good, good inspection results and say, yes or no, you are more or less likely to, um, to have an outbreak, something that's going to have monetary costs that the, that the insurance company is going to pay out. Can we demonstrate that best practices have a public health benefit? Um, I, I think we can do that. But when it comes to the unique situation of having an outbreak, um, all of the things that we look at in best practices and are trying to measure, you have to measure them all the time to, to really get a, a sense. And so that was what he said was the insurance companies look at that and say it's not worth our time measuring these things. So we're going to put them all into one big, big category and just say – um, food food has risk, and it's not worth it, it's not worth the premium reduction. Which right. is, that was ten years ago. That could have changed right. now. And, and that and that makes sense, right? And 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 the the idea of like who's going to do that measuring? Like I understand, like you could go and publish a paper and say, okay, um, these uh, restaurants that do X have a two times higher risk or two times lower risk, and so therefore, on the face of it, they should uh, have a premium that's twice as high or 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 half or half the half the cost, right? Depending on whether the risk is higher or lower, but. Then the question becomes, okay, so now who is it that's going to – let's say we can identify this magic factor that, that causes a twofold change in risk. Who's going to measure that factor? And, and if you say, okay, well, we'll charge you a lower premium, but now we have to raise everybody's premiums because now we have to go and measure that, that right. one magic factor everywhere. And so it ends up being a wash. And, and that, that I understand, right? So that you start off with a, a mathematical probabilistic argument, but then the cost of of the data, and I know. I mean, this is we. This is the big problem in risk assessment is not necessarily building the model. And we talked about this before. When we talked about um, the, the 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 hamburger uh, example. The the what's going to take the most time with that project is not building the model. It's going to be going and finding the data to go into the model, right? right and right. and how good is that data? And how good are those assumptions? And so and and I so from a from if I put on my imaginary. Um, uh, uh, insurance company hat. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a huge amount of effort. If if it, it's incumbent upon the insurance company to go and collect all that data and verify it, et cetera, et cetera, that's a huge um, uh, fixed cost across across the industry. So I, so that 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 argument I understand. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's it's fun to look at these things um, as you know as, as one off. Uh, I don't know if it's factors is the right word, but to, to deconstruct it, but it is, 
it's a, it's a whole system in in reality and and that was that was bill's bill's sort of comment was um the and again i'll i'll paraphrase this the pressure point isn't in lower premiums it's in the shame of being linked to an outbreak that that matters more than you know eight dollars a month or even if it was like two hundred dollars a month cheaper to go through this the so 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 to go back to um, to deep Brazilian cheese breads comment, why, why do this stuff when all you need is a simple insurance policy? And I think it's, I think it's shame or guilt or whatever the, the, the emotion we want to want to tie to it being, being linked to something that it, if you look at it as one event that you can pay off in, in with insurance, it, your business is not just that one event, right? Like now, now, your being able to control risk is is in question, and that bleeds into suppliers buying your stuff after recovering from this this one event. And we and we saw this um, really strikingly um, in a an example here that I was involved with um, five or six years ago in North Carolina, where a farmer had um, had a uh, retailer take a sample of um, a. Um, cantaloupe product, not cantaloupe product, cantaloupe, and uh, found listeria positive on it, not not whatever the, um, you know, there was no load or, or concentration that was, that was associated with it. It was just like you had listeria on your cantaloupe, uh, resulted in a recall. And um, speaking with retailers who this person dealt with, who I, I knew, at, you know, af- after the fact, they called into question all the things they purchased from this individual. And other processors, they were, um, cantaloupe was a small part of what their business was. Like, I don't know exactly what the number was, but let's say it was less than 5% of their sales were in cantaloupe. The 95% were in sweet potatoes and squash. Well, those sweet potatoes and squash were going into, um, baby food. Um, and the, uh, purchaser of the the raw ingredients for the baby food called into question all of their food safety practices and and this didn't come from uh there was no illnesses in, involved and so this stuff doesn't go like in in a low mar, small margin low uh tolerance for any sort of um uh move of of bad publicity or or anything where you've got other um, other vendors that are lined up to sell their their products and you're competing with with them um, that's that's why people do food safety I think not not for the for the covering the insurance costs well and yeah so and just a couple of points like sweet potatoes and squash for baby food I'm assuming that those are going to be retorted absolutely so there's no there's absolutely no connection to listeria risk right so from a risk based perspective um, it makes no difference and then the other thing that occurred to me as you were saying all of that is I just have two um, two two names for you one is Chipotle and the other is Chichis right and uh, Chichis is no more it's a Mexican restaurant chain that went out of business because they bought some um, uh, 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 green onions from 
uh, Mexico or, or from somewhere in South America uh, where the, the, the green onions were, were infected with hepatitis A because of uh, uh, probably, we think, uh, ill workers. Um, and so that's, uh, that's uh, not good and they're out of business. And I don't know if Chipotle has recovered from, from all of their trials and tribulations. And so, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take much really um, uh, to put you out of business, uh, whether you have insurance or not, because uh, they can just keep, they can just keep suing you. And then eventually, you know, eventually you, your, your coverage is exhausted and, and you're stuck. And then, and then the other point, um, which will, which will let us wrap up, uh, deep Brazilian, uh, cheese breads, um, uh, message to us was about melons. And he said, uh, um, he, he just listened to an older podcast, uh, discussing, uh, the growth potential of, uh, pathogens in, in, uh, melons. And, uh, he, he mentioned he walked into a kitchen and noticed a musk melon on the counter. And he says he has a habit of blurting things out. You'd make a great podcaster, um, uh, Brazilian cheese bread. Um, uh, he says, I just heard this a forelog potential uh, for growth of uh, pathogens on uh, muskmelons out of the refrigerator in just three days. And the owner of the kitchen whips <laughs> her head around and points out and sa- uh, points uh, some laser eyes at him and, and says they don't keep them in the fridge at the store. Um, well, and I guess the question that we have to ask with this is were these cut, right? So right, right. is the risk with melons – there's definitely a, a risk of pathogens being on melons. Um, if there's internalization, which I don't think happens in the real world, um, then they could grow inside. And if they're cut, uh, there definitely is a, is a risk. And so um, if they're stored unrefrigerated in the store and they're not cut, um, there's minimal risk. But once they're cut, that's when the, the, the clock uh, starts ticking. Same with tomatoes, right? Tomatoes are, are not stored uh, in the refrigerator, they shouldn't be because of uh, chill injury. Uh, but once you cut those tomatoes, they do become a uh, TCS food or a uh, what used to be called potentially hazardous food. And so um, that's really what matters. So yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I want to this this idea of cut versus whole. Just uh, we'll link to a paper from uh, Sophie Cathario from uh, 2016, looking at um, the capacity. This is the title capacity of Listeria monocytogenes strains from the 2011 cantaloupe outbreak to adhere, survive, and grow on cantaloupe. Um, and this was not cut. Um, this was uh, propensity to grow on the, the rind. Um, and, uh, and just quoting from the abstract, and we, we can go into the um, or listeners can check out the paper, but all strains were able to grow, adhere and grow with tenfold increases after seven days at four or eight degrees, um, uh, four, uh, four or eight degrees Celsius. And then after 24 hours at, at 25 cel- Celsius, um, on the rind, which was really fast. So, so Sophie's, you know, Sophie's work here was kind of demonstrating that a little bit of listeria, on the outside of a cantaloupe can grow through the supply chain. Wow. And, and you know, the other thing I will say too, I don't want to, uh, we haven't submitted the paper for publication yet, but I am convinced because of some work that we've been doing um, that the inoculation method matters, the inoculation substrate matters, and the rel- the storage uh, the relative humidity um, storage for the the item matters and I think that and again I haven't read uh, uh, Sophia's paper and I I don't um, um, I don't you know I'm, I won't I, I'm only looking at the abstract now I'm not looking at the paper but I think we do need to become a lot more careful about how we do these experiments because I think that there can be experimental artifacts and I'm not saying 
that there's not growth, but all I'm saying is we, we really need to look carefully at the methods because I think that there may be people out there reporting growth um, where there is not actually growth. And again, I mean, we're always in well, the challenge when we're doing these experiments is in the laboratory, we're always trying to simulate the real world as much as we can. Um, and of course, sometimes we don't simulate it perfectly, but we need to, uh, we just need to be aware of those limitations. But thank you for pointing out this article. I'm definitely going to take a look at it um, uh, and dig into it as we begin to uh, think about our public publishing our own our own work on um survival cool and growth so thanks yeah you're welcome uh look at that i'm i'm uh, educating today uh let's let's talk kimchi okay let's talk kimchi okay so um gonna link to um a uh paper that uh, was in journal of food protection uh this month in june and of course i um can't find the actual paper um, that I want to talk about, but here it is. Uh, it is, um, from Choi et al. And, uh, it's a research note entitled pathogenic Escherichia coli and salmonella can survive in kimchi during fermentation. Um, and so, uh, I sent you and, and Fred Bright this, um, this message and, and subsequently since you and I, um, had, talked a little bit fred actually got back to me late last week and said because in so i sent a message asking you and fred a couple of questions then you answered and i said let's chat about this on the podcast next week and then fred on friday night said what podcast are you talking about oh and i was like fred uh don and i have a podcast and he's like oh cool well if you ever want me to come on let, let me know um and then i i didn't tell him about our recording today so wow. I would like to to invite him on once we schedule our next uh, uh, podcast to talk about fermentation and especially um, things like kimchi and um, some of the more funky uh, fermentations, non-traditional stuff. And although kimchi is super traditional, I would say traditional type dishes, but non-traditional ingredients and different types of brines. Um, but but I, I highlighted this article with two questions to you. Um and one saying, first, the fancy modeling confuses me, but here's a couple of takeaways. Um, the This paper, they they use, and I'm going to read um, the diced preparation of the diced white radish kimchi. Um, it, it was white radish, chive, ground ginger, ground garlic, and powdered red pepper. Um, and that is not the type of kimchi that I'm seeing when I'm talking to restaurants. So, so I, I kind of took away of most of the kimchi that I, that I would see has cabbage, carrots, and peppers, not a whole lot of radish. Um, and I, I, I would assume that that is going to change the, 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 the model. I mean, it's, it's different types of different types of products. Um, and that, um, the other the other thing that I highlighted for you and Fred in the article was, um, as indicated above, E. coli and salmonella can grow until the kimchi is sufficiently fermented, um, and this is a pro- like this. They highlight this in their um, uh, in, in their conclusions because because kimchi is often consumed before sufficient fermentation has occurred, especially in a food service cafeteria. Additional treatments may be necessary to ensure its microbial safety. And this is, um, I guess, echoes a lot of what I have um, viewed in my 
anecdotal work around kimchi and food service is and and there had been a couple of outbreaks one a large one in japan where a uh, product was quote lightly fermented um but a lot of a lot of individuals either report um you know in the in the illness or outbreak side of things around kimchi that they wanted not too tangy kimchi or lightly ferment or not too salty kimchi and so one of the things that, that Fred and I have, have talked about, and um, Fred was quoted in um, the Art of Fermentation, Sandor Katz's book, about um, risk and safety of kimchi and fermented products. Um, and, uh, you know, basically saying um, if fermentation is complete, then it's a really safe product. And I kind of keep highlighting and being the naysayer that it sounds like there's a lot of places that don't want for complete fermentation. So this is important stuff for us to keep track of. Um, what I, what I don't know yet how to use this or what I don't know yet is exactly how to use this, um, this model, or if it's, if it's something that can be used in the way that I want to use it, which is, um, when someone submits a, um, recipe that they would like to use for kimchi, if for a variance to the food code, how, how, how do we how do we best ask the question of how are you controlling for salmonella and, and pathogenic e coli um, and e, e, typically what we're what we're focusing on is pH um, and a pH drop um, in certain time temperature parameters but um, in the absence of that pH drop or what would you know qualify to be a lightly fermented or incomplete fermentation? Can you make kimchi in a in a way that would be acceptable or suitable for a commercial food service in in the U.S.? And so there's a lot of questions there, but you know, what, what's your take? Yeah. So so first of all, uh, I would say, I mean, this is a perfectly fine uh, piece of work. Um, the modeling that they do, I think you mentioned in your in your email message, the, the modeling was uh, confusing. It's not the modeling that they do in this particular paper is not that fancy. It's basically fitting growth curves. So it's what we would call uh, primary modeling. So it, it tells you uh, lag time, growth rate or inactivation rate. And it's not it's not that hard. There's software. You can just plug it in and do it. It's it's pretty easy. Um uh, I, it's a fine bit of pa- bit of research. Um, I'm not sure how useful this particular paper will be because what we really care about, and you've mentioned this in your comments, is to build a secondary model, which would actually tell us what are the pathogens going to do depending upon the pH, the rate of pH drop. Uh, lactic acid bacterial concentration, uh, fermentation temperature. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned salt. That's that's really uh, really critical. And so, um, and then and then your response was well. So how do we how do we use this um, to let's say help with a variance in a restaurant? And so I would say you know what does the code allow now? What's the restaurant seeking to do? And then what does the literature say? And then um, the, another place where we can really learn a lot, and we will we'll link to this particular paper because this is uh, this idea of fermentation controlling pathogens is 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 well plowed ground in the field of fermented meats, and um, uh, we'll link to a, a paper that was published in AEM. Um, 
um, from Tom Ross's lab um, at uh, UTAS. And the title of the paper is Quantification of the Relative Effects of Temperature, pH, and Water Activity on Inactivation of E. coli in Fermented Meat by Meta-Analysis. And so what they did was they basically did a literature search um, on all this fermented meat research and then came up with recommendations. And I think that there is a fair bit of kimchi research. And so we would need to go out there, collect the data, uh, look at times, look at temperatures, look at pH, look at salt content, right. and then basically begin to build some models that say, okay, uh, this is the most safe with X log reductions. This is unsafe because you get growth. And here's uh, some in-betweens with, with different uh, log reductions. And, 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 and I think that that's eminently doable. Um, I don't, obviously I haven't done a literature search on kimchi, but I've got to imagine that there's some papers out there to get us started. And maybe we would need, maybe we'd need to do some, you know, to collect some more data. And obviously, um, you know, uh, Fred Bright right there um, by you is a fantastic resource resource. He does a, a ton of work for the pickle industry. He understands these issues, you know, backwards and forwards. And, and yeah, I mean, we could do it. It's just a question of what data is out there, what more data do we need, and then, and then come up with uh, some sort of a, a framework to put it all together into something that's going to that's gonna help with restaurant variances. But it's, it's eminently uh, doable. We've, we've done it uh, already with uh, fermented meats. I see no reason why we couldn't do it with, uh, with kimchi. Well, and and I think Fred brings in something else that um, he responded. I don't know if he sent this to both. Yeah, to both of us um, uh, with a paper that that he published um, uh, with Jane Caldwell on um, survival. This is from um, I don't know what uh, 2011 survival of E. coli 157 in cucumber fermentation bronze. That he brings up this time. Um, it, as well, Stor like yep. storage time, essentially, yep. or yep. right. So, yep. so I could see that as we start to develop parameters for someone who wants to ferment kimchi, it's not just your kimchi fermentation is complete, but also then, all right, if you get to but so if you get below four, right? Well, now you have to also leave it at. Um, you know, at, at four degrees for, for nine days or, yep. or something to, to get that five log reduction. Yep. Yeah. And in fact, that, that paper by Fred, um, is I've heard Don Zink talk about it as like kind of the gold standard for how you do this stuff. And, and basically what it says to the pickle people is, look, you can make pickles, um, and you can do this, but you, but the control it's, it's, it's the control is holding the product from the marketplace for a certain period of time until you get essentially that five log reduction. Right. And so, yeah, and that's, that would be probably part of the recommendation to the restaurants is look, yeah, you can make a, a lightly fermented kimchi, but you've got to hold it for X number of hours or days uh, to basically sh make sure that you get that, that proven log reduction. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the devil's in the details, but, yeah. but it's in principle, it's, it's quite, we can, you could do it quite easily. I think, I mean, at least that's, you know, without me having looked at the data or even started down the road, I think it's, it seems like something that would be doable. And it, and it seems kind of, um, Fred Fred reminds us in, in his email that everything this was in this was either with greater than or equal to six percent salt um, salt brine uh, concentration and that that's one of the things that that um, you know that I, that I get questions from chefs about um, getting around right like I want to do a four percent salt brine so it's kind of like okay well here are the parameters that we have that we can tell you about this whole time at six percent and now once we want to move that uh, to a, a different salt 
parameter let's we we need we need different we we need better data right yeah um, so yeah this is anyway i i appreciate you guys both uh weighing in on this and it's an area that actually today uh, after our podcast i'm gonna um hang out here for a couple hours and then um go to the airport and fly to um rhode island well to providence and then drive to uh, Narragansett, uh, where you and I spent a lovely couple of days a couple of years ago. Uh, and I'm going to teach, um, a workshop with, um, Nora Nerd and, uh, Natalie, uh, from my group to, uh, a combination of regulators, academic folks, and industry people on, um, teaching a HACCP variance, uh, workshops or a train the trainer and then we're going to put it on. But what we're, one of the things that we're talking about is fermenting kimchi. Um, uh, and, and so this, um, you know, as, as anything in, in the world of, uh, of food safety science, um, our, I think our thoughts are, are, or at least the way that I approach this, it's always evolving with new, with you know, new information and new data. And, and this is this paper, is something I'm going to talk about today, uh, uh, tomorrow when I when I teach it. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be enjoying the uh, cool breeze of the Atlantic Ocean uh, later tonight. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. uh, I'll wave as you fly over uh, uh, New Jersey. So yeah, you. it sounds like a good a good course. Um, I'm jealous of you getting to to spend time in Rhode Island uh, with those two lovely people. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I wish you I wish you safe travels and and a good course. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, what 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 else? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? We talk- well, we have one one more bit of listener feedback, and then uh, and then I could I could be done. Um, and that is um, uh, a message from uh, Bill F, who says, uh, "Please share all details freely." Uh, hey guys, I saw this article pop up on my feed, and I couldn't help but think of you. And it's a, an article on uh, the uh, uh, um, uh, from CNN, uh, and the headline of the article is "No, Don't ro- Roast Marshmallows Over Hawaii Volcano Vents and Other Answers from the USGS." Um, and he got me, he got him uh, thinking about the safety aspects of car engine cooking, which has been a, a topic that we've we've mentioned on the podcast before. So we will we will link to uh, a May 2007 article on uh, cooking great meals with your car engine. The heat is on. So um, this uh, this um, CNN article on uh, don't roast marshmallows over Hawaii volcanic vents came across my uh, Facebook feed a couple times from a couple of different people. And so obviously, you know, people were looking for something funny uh, to post about about food uh, and food safety and and uh, um, the 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 uh, eruptions in Hawaii. Um, uh, you know, and talking about how the, the federal government is once again, letting us not have fun because we can't roast our marshmallows over, uh, hot lava, um, which, you know, sounds like fun, uh, but also hot lava scares the, the, the bejesus out of me. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not really, uh, not really, uh, I, I can't, I can't disagree with their advice. Uh, it's probably not a best practice. And honestly, the marshmallows are going to be about the same. Um, uh, I would also say, uh, my advice is don't cook, um, great meals on your car engine, uh, even if you find a website that tells you how to do it. Uh, do you have any have any thoughts on either of these two stories, Ben? Uh, no, I just my I love the USGS volcan- volcanoes uh, Twitter feed. Who uh, says? Uh, so someone asks, 
them, is it safe to roast marshmallows? And their response is, erm, we're going to have to say no, that it's not safe. Please don't try. If the vent's emitting a lot of SO2 or H2S, they would taste bad. And if you add sulfuric yep. acid to sugar, you get a pretty spectacular reaction. Yeah. Uh, so good, good job on social media. That's what it's all, that's what it's all about. Um, we did some work uh, baking cookies in cars. Um, a few years ago that I uh, hope to revisit. We uh, presented at IAFP, uh, I think it was two years ago, and have been working on uh, the paper sort of slowly um, on that to get a sense of uh, the you know, safety of uh, what temperatures do cookies get to in a hot car, um, but nothing on engines. Um, it sounds, sounds kind of gross. And also, didn't you? Uh, weren't you? Didn't you threaten to to uh, cook fish in your dishwasher too? I did. <laughs> any, any any progress on that? No, we 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 did. Uh, we we didn't even we didn't just threaten. We actually did it. Uh, and um, have, have some one of those like research note style uh, right. papers that's like here's what it looks like in one dishwasher with a data logger, both chicken. Uh, asparagus and salmon, and the biggest uh, takeaway from the salmon is it smells horrible. <laughs> don't yes. microwave fish. Don't cook fish in your dishwasher. Uh, oh, and and in related related follow up, I have to say we are proceeding with our research on uh, validating that recipe for uh, uh, cooking flour in your oven uh, ah. to to um, uh, make uh, make it safe. And what we've discovered is uh, home ovens, as well as the little toaster oven in the laboratory, um, have a huge temperature fluctuation uh, during the baking process, which I mentioned this to my, my wife, and she says, oh, yeah, that's well known in, in baking, is that you have this multi-dozens of degree fluctuation during the baking process. So um, anyway, more to come. Uh, we're working out the inoculation procedure with a uh, BSL-1 organism. We're working out. We've got some thermocouples. We're, 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 we're moving forward with that, so I'm excited about that. And that's all all an idea for a research project that just happened uh, because uh, Caitlin uh, Kasuli um, uh, sent us some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Um, so, so thanks for that uh, inspiration, Caitlin. And also, I mean, also because I'm interested in the topic and also because I had a postdoc who uh, I want to keep busy with doing, doing good science. And she's she's fantastic. I don't think she listens, but but shout out to uh, my amazing former PhD student, now postdoc uh, Jin Jung, who uh, is just uh, a force of nature in the laboratory. Yay! Awesome. Um, well, I think that's a that's a show. I hear Diamond Dave calling you back. That was actually a, 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 co- a faculty colleague of mine, uh, but but uh, I'm 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 anxious to check in on Diamond Dave, um, and uh, and also uh, my colleague that called. All right. Well, um, I think we should wrap it up. That's a show. And uh, Don, I'll uh, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So I got this one. I will cut out our uh, Diamond Dave uh, intermission. I'm yeah, all- I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Oh, I'm, don't worry I, about I, it. I could have could, just stayed here and talked because it oh, looked like Chris, Kristen got out there right away and got him sorted. But, yeah. That's Thanks. okay. And um, I think we're going to go with Diamond Dave as the show title, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> Perfect. I'm I not even going to go through anything. It's Diamond no, Dave. No, just don't even bother. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that. It's that yeah. <laughs> um, and good, good uh, um, advertising to, to Diamond Dave, who's Diamond not a sponsor. Dave, yeah. um, okay. So... I here here's our here, here's my like um, scheduling issue for our next time we want to record. Um, one, would you want to record next Monday, or because we're going to be recording together on March or no March June twenty first? Would that become our next episode? Oh, because um, I'm wow. going to be away. Uh, Shoot, that's coming up soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's in it's in two weeks. So yeah, wow. So we, I mean, we could make that the next episode, or I could I could do next Monday, but then I'm gone Tuesday through Michigan. Basically, I'm in right, yeah. right, and then I'm not back until the 25th. Yeah, Tuesday through Michigan is also a great show title. It is. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so let's – and we don't know We don't know how that Michigan thing is going to go and right. it might not go well and we don't know when we're going to get the audio. And so I actually uh, – I am leaving uh, Monday uh, to, uh, to go to Mechanicsburg to teach a better process school. But I could definitely do a recording in the morning. Um, I have, um, I have a, um, a support group uh, board meeting at noon in Freehold, but I could do uh, an episode where we started at 9 on – Monday the eleventh. Yeah, that works. That works perfectly for me, and I'm going to do that at home. Uh, I think Jack is going to be. Jack has done school on Friday, and Danny's volunteering at Sam's school. So I have a note that says Jack all day with me. Maybe he'll be a special guest. That um, would be great. I would love that. We could, you know, if he if he wants to talk about food safety, I would love to interview him. <laughs> I think he would. He would love. Actually, Sam more than anything would love that. He. He has discovered our podcast because now we are on um, – they've, they've graduated to their own iTunes accounts um, through Family Share. And so Sam asked me about the podcast, and I, he think he, I think he's downloaded a couple, but he got really upset that I don't mention him in every podcast that he listened oh, to. And then it got boring. Geez. Oh, well. Can't we'll, keep we'll, them all happy. We'll, we'll make it all about him on this next episode. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so this – uh, let me just make sure I got this. Um, this one is 155, and so 156 we're going to do next Monday. Yep. Perfect. Yep. And then that keeps us like I, I prefer to do that, and instead of wait until like the week of the 25th, because that I mean that's just going to be three weeks without a podcast. Yeah, and then we, with this one we can put out like whenever, and yeah. then the one on the 21st we can do whenever, and then on the on the 11th we'll schedule. Uh, another one probably two weeks from yep. then, which will be after Michigan. So it should all be fine. And, and you know, I don't uh, – I I would – I really like the fact that we are kind of like sticking to this every two weeks more or less. And if we put – I would rather put out more rather Agreed. than less just because I think uh, people want them. Uh, they seem to really want them, uh, and, and that's good, and I want to encourage that. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, no, no, we're, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, okay, so 9 a.m. Uh, Monday the 4th. Monday the – not the 4th, the 11th. Yep. Uh, Sounds good. I'll just put it on uh, Monday the 4th. That's not right. Oh, that would be uh, today. That's today. We already, I already did it. 
Absolutely. Already recorded. Um, okay. I think that's it. All right. We'll talk awesome. to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.